So let's walk through this passage. Today we're going to see God's providential protection on the Apostle Paul. The world tells us to depend upon our intelligence or our wisdom or depend upon the government or trust in our military, depend upon our own opinions and our thoughts to guide us and protect us and lead us. But as we will see today in God's Word, it shows us that there is only one secure place for us to be. It is in the providential protection of our Lord. Today we will see the believer's safest place is in the sovereign hand of God. Remember our setting in Jerusalem. Paul is there after being warned at numerous times, don't go to Jerusalem. He went anyway in light of wanting to glorify Christ and going to Jerusalem just like Jesus had gone to Jerusalem. And when he arrives, he was treated just like Jesus in that many opposed him. Paul was facing hostile opposition from his kinsmen. And after being rescued from the hostility, Paul then appeals for another opportunity to testify. (coughs) Most of us... If we were rescued from a hostile crowd, we'd say, thank you for getting me out of that situation. Let's go home. Instead, Paul says, hey, this is a great opportunity. Let me give my testimony. And the guards put him right out in front of the crowd again, and he gives testimony of God's grace in his life that he was a murderer, and now he is a follower of Jesus. And he ends with that statement about the Gentiles, that the Lord had told him to go out to the Gentiles and, uh, because of the, the threat in Jerusalem. So after sharing his testimony, hostility erupts again. This whole section really runs from Acts chapter 21, verse 15, where Paul arrives in Jerusalem and goes all the way through Acts chapter 23, verse 35. And believe it or not, we're going to try to cover all that today. There's a key verse. Yes, I'm going to try to cover a chapter and a half today. Hang in there. We'll make it. Look at Acts chapter 23, verse 11. This is the key verse for the whole section. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus visits Paul and states, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So in the midst of all this hostility, Jesus visits, the Lord visits Paul and tells him, Hey, take courage, Paul. You've testified here. And guess what? You're going to testify in Rome. Now, what does this prophecy reveal? Well, it reveals two crucial points. One, the Lord knows Paul's future before it happens. God knows exactly what's going to happen to Paul. He knows that he's going all the way to Rome. Now, in light of the rest of the book of Acts, for him to get to Rome, this is a pretty amazing statement. Because all the details that have to unfold in order for him to get to Rome are truly amazing. So many times he is going to escape death and get all the way to Rome. It looks like if you were on the outside looking at the events unfolding, you would say, this guy is going to die any minute. But in fact, God, the Lord, tells him, guess what? You're going to make it all the way to Rome. What does this mean? This means the Lord's in sovereign control of all things, right? And it says no matter how chaotic events get, The Lord will take Paul all the way to Rome. What does this say? This says that God knows exactly how many days a person is going to live before he lives one. Isn't that exactly what Psalm 139 states? It says, Your eyes, God, have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This is some encouraging words, isn't it, folks? Do you understand that you're not going to die one second before God ordained for you to die? Every day, every minute, all the time, all your life is set by God's ordained will. Beloved, the Lord knows our future before it happens. He works through His providence for 
our good and His glory. And those are some really comforting words for us who live in a very chaotic world. It's not dependent upon who we vote for. It's not dependent upon who is in government. It's not dependent upon any of those things. God has ordained our lifespan. Praise God, right? So we trust Him. Beloved, these are encouraging words. So today we're going to see five displays of God's providential protection of His own. Five displays of God's providential protection of His own. Let's start with the first one. The commander rescues Paul from the hostile crowd. This display of God's providential protection is replayed numerous times throughout Paul's ministry or time in Jerusalem. He was previously rescued by the Roman commander, a, guy, a, a, a man that was most likely in charge of thousands of troops, of Roman troops. And this Roman commander rescues Paul several times in these events in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, let's look at the first one back in 31 to 37. We saw this in 2131. 2131. Before he makes his testimony to the crowd, it says in verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to, a com to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with, chain, with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd were some shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of an uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he had got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following him, shouting, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks. What we see here is a beautiful picture again of God's sovereign protection. We talked last time about how the Lord used the news of a riot to bring the Roman commanders out to Paul's rescue. Remember we saw then Paul used this opportunity to share his testimony. The apparent closed door was actually a great opportunity for Paul, but Paul's testimony was cut short when he broached the subject of the Gentiles receiving the gospel. This was like pouring gasoline on a fire. When you tell Jews at this time especially that the good news is going to Gentiles, this it makes an angry crowd a ravenous crowd. The Jews of Jesus' day could not stand the thought of Gentiles being delivered by their Messiah. They were worse than Jonah the prophet during that time. You know, we know the story of Jonah and how they, oh, please don't save them. I knew you were going to be a merciful God, that you would save the people of Nineveh. Well, all the people here, the Jewish people, especially the religious elite, were very angry at any thought of the Gentiles coming to know God. But we know from Romans 11, Paul speaking, that this was part of God's plan to, stay, to save a large number of Gentiles. The Lord was still saving a remnant of Jews, but the vast majority of the Jews were under a partial hardening until the time of Gentiles came in. So when Paul stated that the Lord had told him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, in 2221, you see that, the crowd erupts. Notice this led the commander to save or rescue him again. Look at 2222, the second, the second one. In 2222, the commander rescues Paul again. They listen to him up to this statement, and then they raise their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust up into the air, 
the commander ordered him to be brought in to the barracks. What do we have? Gasoline on a fire. They were outraged. Why? Because he said, Jesus told me, go, for I will send you as far away to the Gentiles. Far away to the Gentiles. You know, we see here the Jewish people as a whole were reacting just like the Jews had responded to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Look over with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus speaking to his own hometown. And he says he fulfills the scriptures and from Isaiah. But in verse 24, he kind of fills in the details about how his own people are going to reject him. And he says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the, all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them. Do you see that? He was sent to none of the Israelite women. But only to Zarephath the, in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. And all the people in the synagogue, look at their reaction, were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him, Jesus, out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down a cliff. What do we have here, folks? We have the Jewish people jealous, angry at the thought that Gentiles got saved during this period and I'm going to go to the Gentiles in a sense. My message, the good news of me, is going to be accepted by the Gentiles, but not you. Now in Acts 22, what happens? Paul says it. That's exactly, go back there. In Acts chapter 22, he says, the Lord told him to go to the Gentiles. And this is why the ire rises in the crowd. Notice though in verse 23, chapter, Acts chapter 22, verse 23, notice how God protects him again, protects Paul. In verse 23 it states, And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust up into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So what's the main lesson we have here? Well, we learn from these events God is able to protect us even by unbelieving officials. <laughs> you understand that these were, these Roman soldiers as a whole, were not believers. They didn't agree with Jesus. They weren't embracing him. I think there's a very important note for us all here to understand. Governing officials can be God's instruments of grace even when they are wicked and have no fear of God. That's a very important lesson for all of us to take note of. No, they may not always treat us with kid gloves. That doesn't happen all the time, right? Sometimes uh, our governing officials can be pretty wicked and pretty tough. In fact, they may be unfair at times, correct? But at the end of the day, God can still use these wicked people to protect us. Why? For His glory and our good. And that's what they did with, it, with Him. This Roman commander, it does not appear that he was a believer. Yet he is always rescuing the Apostle Paul. This is neat, isn't it? What does this show? We don't trust in the Roman commander. We trust in the God that's sovereign over the Roman commander. And the Roman commander can be used. I don't care who is elected. Ooh, you hear this. I don't care who's elected. God can use a donkey to protect us. Praise God, right? We as believers need to keep our eyes on our king. Our God that's in sovereign control of all these things. Government officials included. He's all about protecting his own. Isn't that good news? He loves us. Even when it appears there's no evidence that the officials are believers, he 
he's still protecting his own. We will see this same commander rescues Paul again and again throughout this section. Friends, we need to recognize who is the ultimate authority and trust him in our lives. The Lord loves his own and he cares for us through the even unbelievers. We just need to remember to show the unbelievers Christ as we serve these people. So we see first, God providentially uses the Roman commander to rescue Paul. The next display of God's providential protection is the citizenship rescues Paul from the scourging cords. Look in verse 24. In verse 24 it states, The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and stating that he should be examined by scourging. Uh-oh, that commander is now turning on and doing something very unkind so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired my citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him, immediately you can see him. Let him go. You can almost picture this, right? They're like, ooh, not going to touch this guy anymore. And the commander was also afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. Once again, we see God's providential care for his own. Paul is taken back into the barracks. Now the commander probably is a little irritated, don't you think? At this point, he's probably getting a little fed up with this. Because every time this guy speaks, what happens to the Jews? They get irate and more chaos incurs. One time he had to have him carried. The next time he begs for him to talk to him again. And what do they do? They get even more angry. Gasoline on the fire. So you think, you think this governing official is starting to get a little irritated? Oh yeah. He's like, I can't figure this out. I want to find out what's going on. I want to get to the bottom of this. Beat that man. <laughs> Beat that man until we can figure out what's going on. But as Paul is stretched out with these leather straps, it comes to Paul's mind, hey, I know how I can get out of this. <laughs> That's very important. What most likely these, the thongs are is, is that he was wrapped around a big pole with leather straps and held like this so that they could beat him with the scourge. The scourge is, was a leather uh, piece, a whip, often with pieces of bone or glass in the end of it. So they would take this and they would whip the man until finally he said, okay, I'll tell you exactly what you want to know. Punishment, torture, in order to get him to confess and tell, explain everything that was going on. So as Paul stretched out with this, with these leather straps, and he's just about to get whipped, he says, wait a second now. Is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman, a Roman citizen, and uncondemned? This was like a giant red light for the soldiers who were beating Paul. Whoa! Stop! No whips for you. The scourge was not a weapon anyone wanted to face, like I said. And again, the Roman soldiers knew we aren't supposed to beat Roman citizens. Being beaten by this would make anyone confess, but this guy, was, it wasn't going to come by a beating because he was a Roman citizen. If we think about this now, I want you to just think about what is implied by this. We will recognize God's grace in this whole story. Do you understand? Paul was a Jewish man, but he was a Jewish man that was a Roman citizen. This was very, very uncommon. Most of the time the Jews did not become Roman citizens. You had to be of a city that was substantially 
uh, or was at least a colony and taken care of by the Roman government. You had to be from that area. You had to be born and raised there. Your parents had to be a Roman citizen or you had to buy it. So Paul was a Jewish Roman citizen. In fact, he was born a Roman citizen, as this passage says. This is even less likely of an occurrence. God had providentially saved a Jewish man who was a Roman citizen who was also well trained in Judaism. Paul used his Roman citizenship here to avoid being beaten. But this citizenship actually not only saved him from the beating. Folks, do you know why the, the, the governor or the, the commander continues to protect him through this whole story? After this, once he finds out he's a Roman citizen, he starts treating him what? With even more respect. And he's protecting him even greater. We see here God's care for Paul. Often, folks, I I know as we're going through these passages and we're reading the New Testament, we see all these passages about us suffering, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Pastor Mike talks about it a lot. It seems as though it's almost on every page of the New Testament where there's going to be suffering. Well, I want to encourage you, folks. God is not capricious with his suffering for us. He is also a kind God that protects us. He loves us. Isn't that good news? He actually cares for us. He's put us right now, all of us, in a country that as a whole, we have freedoms. We're taken care of. What a good God, right? As a whole, we walk down the road. We, we're not going to, we don't, we have some security, right? I was reminded of this as I drove around my neighborhood, drove out my neighborhood this morning. There was a lady there that said, be careful. People are watching your house. They are stealing from your neighborhood or stealing from your house. This lady had this sign. And I thought to myself, yeah, I might get some stuff stolen from somebody. But, you know, God is in sovereign control. He's protecting me. I'm not going to worry about that sign. Does that make sense? I'm going to trust God. He's good. He doesn't waste suffering on people. He often, especially his children, he loves us. How many of you, as parents, look at your kids and say, you know, I really don't want you to suffer. Do you tell them, don't run out in the street? Why? Because you love them. Guess what? God loves us too. Good news, right? He cares for us. He protects us. He puts things in our lives through his providence to care for us. And our Lord is the same the way he was with Paul as he is with us. You know, this should cause us to be what? More thankful. We should have grateful hearts, shouldn't we? You know, I think some of the problem in our country, I'm just laying it out there, for the believers... Is, is that we've forgotten to just be grateful for what we have. Maybe we need to be more thankful to the Lord for what he's done. Some of this might be, okay, I'm not going to, the Lord is allowing us to go where we are because we haven't been as thankful to him as we should have been through the years of his care. I think of all the little things that God providentially has done to provide for us. Some of you might not like some of these, but it's the truth. I think of seatbelts, traffic laws, medicine, shelters, houses, parents, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the numerous ways God has provided for us. What a good God! He's a good God. He loves us. And it's not because some founding fathers were great men. Being honest, it's they were sinners like me and you. But what did God do? He providentially took care of us. Praise God, right? Why did he do it? For his glory and our good. That's a good father. It's a good father. He loves us. He's a loving God. 
The Lord is compassionate and gracious and kind, loving to those who fear him. The Lord had determined Paul would be born a Roman citizen. And that would end up being his way to be rescued from a beating one day. Paul's birthright would be used years later to protect him from a useless beating. These truths should make us all more thankful. No, the governing officials don't always treat us perfectly. I, I would imagine being carried and put in chains and wrapped around the pole wasn't all that pleasant, right? But at the same time, he didn't get beat to death by the Jews at this point. Our God cares for his children. He gave Paul the wisdom of the law to protect him for that moment. I think of this little boy we're, we're thankfully matched with over in China right now. That we are going to, by God's grace, go get in the next six months or so. Do you realize God has his hand on that little boy? What a compassionate and gracious God. What a loving father. We get to participate in his care for his own. Isn't that beautiful? I love God. He is so good to us. We need to be more thankful, don't we? We should be grateful, people. God is not out to get us. He loves us. Don't watch the news. Trust the Lord. Read the Bible. He cares for his own. I put no hope in this government. I put all hope in Jesus Christ the Lord. It does not matter who's in power. It does not. He is in power. We trust him. So we've seen God providentially protected Paul with the Roman commander. And then God providentially protected Paul with the Roman citizenship. Next, he displays God's providential protection in the conflict rescues Paul from the corrupt council. That's number three. The conflict rescues Paul from the corrupt council. When it goes one, two, two like that, that means you're on an airplane at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the conflict rescues Paul from the corruption. In this display of God's providential protection, the continuous conflict over the supernatural is used to protect Paul. This is an argument over... Whether scripture is true, whether God is a supernatural God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I think of arguments, I usually think of those as something that's going to destroy things, right? Everybody? Arguments, conflicts, horrible. I hate conflict. How many of you like conflict? None of us, right? We hate it. Here's one for you. This conflict rescues Paul. It rescues Paul. God's providence. Look at this. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, it states, 23.1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him, beside Paul, to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try according to the, me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, Oh, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And he said this. As he said this, there occurred a dissension 
a conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar. Again, more, more gasoline on the fire. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel spoke to him, has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force, bringing him into the barracks again. Third time, he's rescued. These events are similar to the events Paul faced back in Ephesus, where a city clerk ended up diffusing the thing to protect Paul. Remember, great as Artemis? Here we've got a fight going on between two religious parties. Why is Paul there again? Why is he standing before them again? Look at 2230. Paul is once again brought before these Jews because the Roman commander says, Why are these guys so angry at him? I've got to find out what's going on. I know he's a Roman citizen. I know we need to protect him, but why is it this bad? So on 20, in 2230 it states, but on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. So the Roman commander did what? He called all the Sadducees and Pharisees of the council to get together. Come together and let's let this guy talk to you. Let's figure out what's going on. I want to know what's going on, is what he said. This time... Paul was brought before a group of leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection and in angels and spiritual powers. The Pharisees were the conservatives, for lack of a better term, of the Jewish elites. The Sadducees were the liberals and they were the ruling party. They took out much of the supernatural events of the Old Testament. And they denied the resurrection. Paul catches on to this very quickly. He catches on to something very important. He realizes this council, they're not going to treat me well. They don't, they, they don't want to listen. He gets it. He knows, you know what, these guys want my head. They don't like me. How does he catch on so quick? Well, real quick. He catches on because the high priest orders him to be what? Struck in the mouth. The high priest says, go punch this guy in the face. That's the struck. It's not one of these little slaps. It was most likely the words here is pointing to, go up and punch him in the face. So Paul takes a punch in the face, it appears. And I believe at this point, it appears that Paul loses his temper a little bit. And the way I look at this is you see Paul as a human, okay? I don't know about you guys, but at this point I got a little bit of relief because the Apostle Paul, every time I read him, especially after conversion, I'm thinking this guy's perfect, right? I can't be him. But I think at this point he says, wait a second, I'm taking a punch from you, you whitewashed tomb. And he says to the high priest, God is going to strike you. You whitewashed wall. Do you sit here trying me according to the law? And in violation of the law, you order me to be struck? He calls him out, doesn't he? Now, I take it that this was not Paul's finest statement. Because he takes it back when confronted. Notice it says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall respect those that are above you, in a sense. But again, with these opening events before the council, Paul concludes, this is not going to go well for me. This council is going to take me down. It's going to be ugly. So what does he do? He wisely begins to cry out, I know what I'll do. I'll get the Pharisees fighting with the Sadducees, and it'll cause an uproar, and maybe that commander will get me out of here again. And that's what happens. 
Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, he cries out loudly. A son of the Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. By the way, that's a true statement, isn't it? What is the hope of Israel? Jesus Christ. And he is what? The resurrection from the dead. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am also the resurrection and the life. He is the hope, isn't he? So he doesn't lie. He says something profoundly true. He gives the gospel in one sentence to this council. And yet, what do they do with that truth? They go, not sure. Let's fight about this. <laughs> Let's argue about whether there's a resurrection or supernatural things. And as it states, a great dissension was developing. The commander was afraid, so Paul would be, Paul would be torn to pieces, so he orders the troops to go back down and take him by force back into the barracks. What we see in this scene is God can even use conflicts to rescue us. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? God can use conflicts to rescue us. The shrewdness of Paul here, his wisdom, coupled with the conflict that arose from it, was the reason the commander once again stops Paul from being hurt. Oh, this gives me so much hope, so much encouragement. Think about this, folks. People can be fighting, and God can use that to actually protect us. Isn't that good news? Well, reminds me of the news, right? Again, good news. God's got a hand on his people. God is good. Was Paul on trial for the hope of the resurrection? Yes, because he was claiming Jesus was the hope and the resurrection. He was the fulfillment of what the Pharisees had said they were looking for. Jesus was the hope of Israel. He had died and rose from the dead, and folks, he was clinging to him. And yet when he proclaims that, it causes a fight, which then leads to his departure. He was wise, right? So what's our main lesson here for us in this section? Our shrewdness can be a way to rescue us. Wisdom can rescue us from pain. Don't we know that? Wisdom can rescue us from pain. But it's very important to know that it's God that obviously gave him this awareness and understanding. Wisdom comes from who? God. A fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Be as wise as a serpent, but as gentle as a dove. Shrewd as a serpent, you could say. This is stunning, though. The enemies are all angry, and what are they doing? They're fighting with one another. <laughs> They're fighting with each other, and it gets him out. We need to realize God's sovereign control over all things, even every fight. Wow! Even every argument. I believe Paul came up with this shrewd plan by being focused on the Lord. However, it's important to note that this wisdom came right on the heels of a lack of wisdom. In the same passage, it appears that he wasn't very wise, right? It appears that he says something that could have got him in more trouble when he spoke about the whitewashed wall. Oh, what does this say to me? Oh, listen closely, folks. I hope, this is, I hope you're encouraged by this. How many times have we said something stupid or acted stupid or wrong? I know we're not supposed to use that word. Sorry, kids. Don't use stupid. Ignorant. Dumb. Foolish. We've done something wrong, right? And then as things get like they're about to explode, still we get out of it by just saying something. This is God's grace. He works in his children. How many times has he rescued us from our own foolishness? Anybody? All the time. What a good God, right? Do we say... Man, I'm a wise guy. <laughs> Way to go, Mike. Way to go, Mike. You thought up a shrewd way to get yourself out of that jam. 
No, because right before it I was being foolish and saying foolish things to the high priest. Correct? God. Oh, what a good God we serve. What a gracious master. What a compassionate father. God often works despite us and our imperfections. If that doesn't give you hope, you've missed the whole point of the passage. This is the benefit, ladies and gentlemen, of being a child of God. God loves us. God protects us, even when we don't necessarily deserve it. So, the next display. Let's look at another one. Number two again. <laughs> the kin rescues Paul from the wicked conspiracy. Now, notice I tried to get C's, but we all brainstormed for hours and could not find another C. So, it's kin. Sounds the same, even though it's not. The kin rescues Paul from the wicked conspiracy. I love this story. Look at verse 12 of chapter 23. Are y'all okay? Everybody with me? I'm covering huge swaths of territory today. This is the display of God's providential protection from one of Paul's relatives. Verse 12 or 23, 12 states, When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy. Uh-oh. And bound themselves under an oath. This one almost makes me laugh every time I read it. Saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they killed Paul. Remember what happened in verse 11. Paul's going all the way to Rome. That's a long journey. That's a lot of not eating. Saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you in the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine this case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, their ambush, and came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, What is it that you have to report to me? And the young man said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than forty of them are lying in wait for him who have, been, have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Now, it doesn't take a lot of explanation. Y'all get this, right? What a story. <laughs> what the events are amazing. Again, these events are stunning. Paul is protected by his nephew. His nephew. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush is what it says. We see here the hostility towards Paul is crazy. A conspiracy is hatched by 40 irate and irrational Jews. They make a solemn oath to taste nothing until they kill Paul. Friends, I just want to warn you. This is a case of where anger makes you or a person or a group of people, irrational. Anger makes us, and again I have it, kids don't say it, maybe I should use a different word. Anger makes us do ignorant things and makes us foolish. Before you judge these guys, folks, listen to me. 
we are all prone to make these foolish kind of vows. Listen to me. Have you ever said in your mind this when you were arguing with somebody? Maybe even your own spouse. Well, I'm just not going to talk to that person until they come and apologize to me. Ever said one of those in your heart? No, I never said that. You know what that is? That's a foolish vow. It's a foolish vow. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm going to make them suffer by me not talking to them. It's not much different than these, this foolish vow, which is what? We're not going to eat until that man dies. Anger makes us ridiculous, doesn't it? And remember, often anger starts in a heart that is not pleased with how things are unfolding. Mark that. Understand that. Most of the time, anger comes because things aren't going the way we, what? Want them to go. And before you know it, you're doing something stupid or foolish. Sorry, got to take that out of my vocabulary. Pretty sure, though, I'm convinced that these people lied. What do you think? Think they lied? I'm fairly sure. It doesn't say anywhere in there, but I'm fairly sure these 40 guys did not starve themselves to death. But notice how the Lord protects Paul. One of Paul's own relatives overhears the conspiracy and reveals it to Paul, the commander, and then the commander. Think of what had to happen in order for this to occur. Now, folks, there's evidence in this passage that Paul's nephew was a young man, verses 16 and 17. And it says the commander took him by the hand. So it could have been a boy, a young boy, a young nephew, the age of Luke or Caleb. Now, think about what has to happen in order for this to happen. This young man has to walk by and hear the council conspiring and come up with a plot. Now, think about this. How many young men, young guys, maybe a Luke or a Caleb's age, hears, a, hears something like that and says, you know what? I've got to be courageous. I've got to go to the barracks. I've got to go to the barracks and tell Paul what's about to happen. And then when Paul tells him, go to that Roman commander, do you think the Roman guards, you remember last week, last Sunday night, with the, all the get-up of the soldiers, all their armor, how many of those 10-year, 9-year young boys are going to go, oh, I think I'm going to go talk to the Roman guards? Look at what the details here. Isn't this wonderful? Why does it happen? We know the answer, don't we? God's providential care for his own. God's working in this little guy to go and to go up to Paul and say, hey, I hear about a plot. What's this main lesson? This is so encouraging, isn't it? Oh, take comfort, ladies and gentlemen. Take comfort. If God can use a young man to rescue the Apostle Paul in an impossible circumstance, guess what? He can take care of you. He can take care of you. There's nothing in your life that's too big for God. He's good. He has unlimited resources at his disposal. He's the king. He's the God that's in control. He's in control of even our little kids. Ah, is that not encouraging? I was thinking about this last night as I was flying back. Man, that means every bolt on this plane is in the sovereign hand of God. All of it's his. He's a good God. We see here God is able to thwart the vilest of plots with the courage of a little boy. Oh, Psalm 8.2 just screamed in my head when I was reading through this. Psalm 8.2 says, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. What a good God, right? That's how God does it. He often takes the most small and insignificant to thwart the enemy, to show off his glory. Therefore, we all go, Oh God, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what the psalmist says. That's what we say, right? Is he king? Does he care for you? Yes, he does. 
This reminds me. I was, I remember this quote, and then I asked Mark to give me some details and remind me of this story of John Patton, a missionary to the South Sea Islands. There were cannibals that were plotting to eat John Patton. They wanted to kill him. But I love John Patton's perspective. He stated this quote that's amazing. We are immortal till God's done with us. We live until what? God takes us home. We don't die one second before. No, no matter how big the plots are, guess what? We're taken care of. That's what we got to think on, folks. The world tells you don't. The world tells you you've got to figure it out. The world tells you it's up to you. Don't listen to the world. Trust the Lord. Finally, we see the centurion soldiers, number two again, <laughs> rescue Paul for the, from the lethal conspiracy. There's always, there's always good for a little bit of comic relief, right? Is this display of God's providential protection, the commander calls two centurions to muster their soldiers and deliver Paul safely to Caesarea with a letter. Paul leaves Rome, or Paul leaves Jerusalem, right? Look at this. We'll conclude with this. Acts 23, 23 to 35. I know, y'all, you're like, wow, you're covering tons of information. Hang in there, guys. You can do it. Here we go. And he called to him two of the centurions, verse 23, and said, get 200 soldiers. Do you understand what that is? That's, that's amazing, isn't it? Ready by the third hour. That's quick. Get ready. It's at night of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to Paul on, to, mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Man, they're protecting this guy, right? And he wrote a letter having this form. And here, look at this letter. Claudius, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them and the troops and rescued him, having learned that they were that, that he was a Roman. By the way, does he leave out some details? <laughs> just like a Roman or just like a government official, right? And wanting to assert, ascertain the charge for which they were accusing, accusing him, I strapped him to a pole and was about to beat him. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> he left that one out. I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there, were, there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with them, they returned to the barracks. When, when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked for, from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, he said... I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Change of barracks now. Now he's in Herod's Praetorium in Caesarea, 75 to 100 miles away. Do you see the details here? What a God. Look at the rescue. Here is a high-ranking Roman commander listening to a young maybe 10 to 12-year-old boy, about a conspiracy. He buys it completely, 100%, and he does what? He sends 200 soldiers, spearmen, and 70 horses to escort Paul 75 to 100 miles away. Who is this Roman commander? You, you, you keep reading and you keep thinking, okay, and he became a believer and served Jesus the rest of his life. You keep waiting for that, right? But what happens? No. We're, we're told nothing. This is 
another, this is the Roman commander that might not have even been a believer. He sends Paul in the middle of the night to protect him. He sends Paul with a letter. The letter, isn't the letter shocking? The letter in, in, in all intents and purposes exonerates Paul. It says he's not guilty. He didn't do anything worthy of death. This is amazing. Two centurions, the soldier groups, escort this lowly Jewish man to a coastal city. Again, if we just think on who makes up the vast majority of this group, the unbelievers, we should be greatly, greatly encouraged. What's the main lesson? God can use even relatively wicked soldiers to rescue this believer. We need to recognize the glorious control of our God, folks. We must not allow what the media tells us about fearing the world. We must trust that God is in sovereign control of everyone. From the greatest to the smallest, from the most popular to the most obscure, from the oldest to the youngest, from the strongest to the weakest, the sovereign protection of God should cause every one of us to sleep peacefully at night we rest what at peace completely we're not we're, we don't have a head on a swivel we're not it's coming again uh oh we rest because our god is sovereign yes i would say it it's one of my favorite doctrines in all the bible the sovereignty of god Why? Because when my world is crashing down around me, I know my God is king. Where do we turn when it appears everyone is against us? Where do we turn when life seems to deal, be dealing us chaos everywhere we look? Where do we turn? Where do we turn, beloved? Where do we turn? We turn to the God who is in control. And we cry out with the psalmist, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where does, shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He will keep you. He who keeps you will not slumber. God does not sleep. Behold, he keeps Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And all God's people say, what a good God. What a good God. I'll tell you, I feel, I, 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 I'm convinced of his sovereign care for me right now. Where I feel I gave you exactly what the word says with all of my heart and I got two hours sleep last night. Is it because Mike's some strong man? No, I want to pass out right now. But because our God is a good God. And he loves you, ladies and gentlemen. For you who are here that don't know that loving God, it is not a duty to follow him. It is not a burden to follow the Lord God Almighty. He is a good father. He cares for his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your care of us, for your word that shows us your sovereign protection. Oh, God, help us today to rest well in your care. To know that 
We who were your enemies are now your beloved children. Thank you, Father, for your care. Use us for your glory. Help us to be thankful, grateful children. Resting in your loving care. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.